The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. For the past several weeks, I've been repeatedly saying that things are going to get worse before they get better. And the public health experts are telling us that we're now approaching the anticipated peak of the epidemic in the next one to two weeks. As of Thursday night, there's been almost uh, 244,000 cases of COVID-19 and 6,164 deaths reported in the U.S. Here in the U.S., we've now exceeded the death toll experienced in mainland China. In Illinois, we have almost 7,700 cases and 165 deaths. And the numbers are mounting exponentially. And we're hearing these alarming statistics all the time now. And it's hard to wrap our mind around what it all means, especially when we're so isolated from one another in our homes, totally disconnected from the outside world. But behind each of these numbers is a person, a family devastated by this epidemic. Families that are unable to see their loved ones before they pass because of these strict visitation rules implemented by hospitals to prevent further spread of the disease. Families unceremoniously burying their loved ones with no funeral to honor their lives and grieving by themselves because of the social distancing restrictions. To put a human face on this tragedy, let me tell you the story of just one family. Ursula Osborne is a cardiac surgery nurse at Mass General Hospital in Boston. She and her husband came down with symptoms of COVID-19 on March 16th, roughly about two weeks ago. Sore throat, runny nose, fever. Within a week, her husband became so weak that he could barely function, and he began to experience difficulty breathing. Shortly after rushing him to the hospital by ambulance, he was put on a ventilator and induced into a coma, and he is now currently fighting for his life. Ursula is seven and a half months pregnant right now, and she remains at home caring for her three-year-old son. She is so ill she can barely speak, barely able to take care of her son. And all her friends can do to support her is to drop off groceries at her front door in order to get in, avoid getting infected by COVID-19 themselves. This is the human tragedy of COVID-19 being played out all over the U.S. and all over the world. And this is why we need to be in such earnest prayer for our nation and for our world. Today I want to preach from Lamentations chapter 3. The book of Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah not long after the city of Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. It's a short book composed of Five laments as the prophet weeps for the city he loves, overcome by its destruction. 
Jeremiah had been warning the the people of Judah for decades that God's judgment was coming if they didn't repent and turn from their idolatry and their evil ways. But when the judgment finally came, Jeremiah could hardly believe it himself. He was devastated as at first he witnessed the siege. The Babylonian soldiers camped around Jerusalem. And then the horrific famine that occurred because of the siege. Then Jerusalem finally fell. The temple was burned to the ground. The walls of the city were destroyed. And the people deported to Babylon where they would live in captivity for the next 70 years. The prophet is overcome with grief because of how deeply the knife would cut. You know, like Lamentations, the book of Job deals with the issue of suffering. But Job explores suffering at the individual level. Lamentations is about communal suffering, suffering at a much larger scale. That's why the Jews looked to Lamentations in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed the second temple built by Herod. It's also why they chose the book of Lamentations as a source of great comfort and help in light of what they experienced in the 1940s, the Holocaust. World War II. And it's also why I've chosen to look at Lamentations in light of what we're experiencing with the coronavirus crisis. Although the scale of the suffering may be great, the tragedy is always experienced at a very personal level, isn't it? Speaking about what God had done to his people, Jeremiah writes in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 4, he has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. Husbands lost wives. Mothers lost sons and daughters. Everyone was touched in a very personal way by this tragedy. As we saw last week in Psalm 46, uh, we were given a, a picture of a great reversal of God's creation. In creation, God caused land to form, bringing order out of the chaos of the sea. And he gave the people a suitable place to dwell. But the catastrophe that they were experiencing at that time felt like the exact opposite of that creation work of God, where raging waters of the sea flooded the earth even swallowing up the mountains whole. It was as if the very fabric of life, as they understood it, was becoming unraveled. And a similar reversal is described in Lamentations. But this reversal is not of God's creation work, but of God's covenant relationship with his people. God's presence had always been the source of great encouragement for the Israelites. The thought of God as the divine warrior brought comfort because it meant that God was fighting for them. But in the aftermath of the horror that they had just witnessed, God's presence no longer felt like a comforting thought to them. And the picture of God as a warrior was terrifying because rather than fighting for them, he was now fighting against them. 
Lamentation chapter 2, verse 5, captures the sentiment well when it says, The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for daughter Judah. In chapter 3, Jeremiah paints a detailed picture of the pain that he and the whole nation of Judah had suffered under God's hand. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, it says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely, uh, uh, surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. And he continues in verse 7 to 9. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. In other words, he pictures himself chained and imprisoned by God so that there is no escape from his situation and no way to even ask for help from someone else. In verses 10 to 15, it says, He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. These next set of images paints a picture of being intentionally hunted by God. No matter where he goes, he cannot escape the aim of the archer of being torn down. And so he closes with these grim words in verses 16 to 18. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. What are we to make of this dark picture that is being painted of God in these verses? Well, I think first, we have to recognize that like a lot of the Psalms of Lament, these verses are capturing the raw, unfiltered emotions of a person in incredible pain, confusion, and hopelessness after having survived this horrifying catastrophe. And yet we also have to acknowledge that Jeremiah is right when he sees God's hand behind everything that happened. I've been saying repeatedly these past several sermons that for many of us, we have too weak a view of God's sovereignty. God had warned the Israelites for decades that judgment was coming, and when they refused to listen, he finally acted and punished them because of their disobedience. So then what does it mean for us to apply the Scripture into our lives today? Does it mean that every time we go through suffering, God is punishing us for something we've done? Well, I would answer categorically no. 
The Bible doesn't give us a single simplistic reason for suffering. There are undeniable times when God does act in judgment and wrath. And as a result of that, there is suffering. But the story of Job shows us that even a righteous person can experience great tragedy in his or her life that is, has no connection with anything particularly that they have done. The Bible also tells us that we live in a fallen world entangled in a web of brokenness and sin, which causes so much suffering and pain for all of us. I think we also have to be really careful about interpreting national events through the lens of how God treated Israel in the Old Testament. Israel is unique in the sense that it was a political nation that was also made up entirely of God's people. America does not fit that description, nor does any other modern country for that matter. We live in an era when God's people aren't located in a single nation, but we are scattered throughout the world among all nations. And so when we put all of this together, what I'm saying is that we have to be very cautious about jumping on any simplistic explanations for why events like this global pandemic are happening in our time. Well, so then maybe this is a more pressing question. Did God, did God will this COVID-19 crisis to take place? And in order to answer this, we need to understand that there are different ways that God's will can be defined. We can talk firstly about what we can call God's perfect will, which means what God would wish would happen in a perfect world. In other words, God's perfect will is that we would never hurt each other. There would be, in God's perfect will, no disease, no car accidents, no death. But we know that we don't live in a perfect world. And so we can talk about God's will in another sense. We can call this God's decretive will. In other words, what God decrees will happen in history. This is the will of God that actually does end up happening, which because of the brokenness and sin in our world allows for things like pain and suffering, disease and death. And because he has given us free will, God allows us to experience suffering as a result of our own sin and failures, as well as the sins of others inflicted on us. And yet, in a world filled with all of this brokenness, sin, and suffering, the Bible tells us that God can still accomplish his purposes, nevertheless. That's why Joseph was able to testify in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In other words, he was telling his brothers, your agenda was to basically get rid of me. But even in that broken situation of our family drama, God had a greater purpose that he was able to carry out 
through your evil plotting against me. And so this global coronavirus pandemic is God's will in the sense that it couldn't happen unless God allowed it. But this doesn't mean that it is God's perfect will or his wish. He takes no pleasure in all of this suffering. Yet he can redeem catastrophes like this COVID-19 crisis for good. So then how should we respond when we go through an event like this? As I pointed out in the last couple of messages, just trying to survive this epidemic so that we can return to our normal lives is not an adequate response to it. Let's look further in Lamentations 3 so that we can learn how Jeremiah processed his own experience of suffering. Verses 19 to 33, it says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart, or grieve the children of men. You know, Jeremiah follows the pattern that we see repeatedly in the Bible of those who go through suffering. And it begins with an acknowledgement that the struggle that he's experiencing is a direct result of God's hand. But then, immediately after that, he responds confusingly by drawing closer to God in the midst of the trial, looking to God for deliverance. And the question is, how is he able to do this? He's able to do it because he knows that in his essence, God is good. And everything that God does is for our good. In verse 33, Jeremiah says of God, he does not afflict from his heart. The NIV translates that's the ESV, but the NIV translates that phrase as, he does not willingly bring affliction. In other words, God's basic posture toward us is not one of anger or hatred pointing a constant accusatory finger at us. He doesn't relish punishing us, but he disciplines us out of necessity because of his love for us. When we read all of this in light of the New Testament teaching and the gospel, as Christians saved by Jesus, what we can say is this. 
is that Jesus has already received the punishment we deserved for the guilt of our sins. And so when we think about suffering as discipline, we shouldn't think about it as paying a penalty for our wrongdoing because Jesus already did that. It's more about how God, in his love, allows us to go through trials so that we can grow through them. Verse 27 says, It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And we looked at this yoke language a couple months back in the idolatry series, basically a yoke being a harness that is placed on a pair of oxen or a single ox to basically keep them in the right direction when the farmer is plowing. It's the picture of surrender to God's discipline and training in our lives. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 and 11 says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. When we're going through suffering, it is natural to ask the question, why? But I want to argue that we need to ask the right why question. When we ask why, it shouldn't be a sense of trying to get to the bottom of what triggered the suffering to take place. As if we can get to the very root of causation. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to us? These are things that only God can know fully. But I believe we do need to ask, why is this happening? In the sense of opening ourselves to how God may want to use the hardship we're going through to train us in righteousness and make us more like Jesus. That exploration of asking why may lead us to the discovery that actually we did contribute to the problems that we're struggling with. And God wants us to understand that so that we can grow out of that. Or it may have nothing to do with our own actions. But God nevertheless allows us to go through it so that we can learn how to depend on Him more through that trial. There are many answers that we may receive as we wrestle with that why question. What are you trying to accomplish in this trial in my life. This leads us to the last element of Jeremiah's response to suffering that we see as a pattern throughout Scripture. And that is this, to be still before God, taking on a humble posture of submission and learning. This is captured in verses 28 to 30. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. And let him be filled with insults. You know, going through times of difficulty doesn't automatically mean that we're going to benefit from them. After Jerusalem fell, you would think that the people of Judah would finally acknowledge that they were wrong. 
wrong to ignore all of the warnings God gave through Jeremiah and all the other prophets that he had sent throughout the ages. Warning them against their waywardness, their evil, their idolatry. But even after going through all of that suffering, they became even more stubborn and hardened their hearts even more against God. Jeremiah chapter 44, verses 15 to 18 says this, Then all the men who knew that their wives were burning incense to other gods, along with all the women who were present, a large assembly, and all the people living in lower and upper Egypt said to Jeremiah, We will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will certainly do everything we said we would. We will burn incense to the queen of heaven, which is a pagan goddess, and will pour our drink offerings to her, just as we and our our ancestors, our kings and our officials did in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. At that time, we had plenty of food and were well off and suffered no harm. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, We have had nothing and have been perishing by sword and famine. You can hear the tone of defiance. Jeremiah, you have your interpretation and we have ours. And they don't line up. And rather than turning back to God in repentance, they went the complete opposite direction, committing themselves even more strongly to their idols. As crazy as it sounds. But this is what I want to say. The disruption we experience as we go through times of difficulty that actually shakes the very foundations of life as we know it. Those moments of trial and difficulty can lead us to new and exciting places of learning and growth. But the truth is that they can also make us cling even more frantically to our idols. All we want is to get back to the status quo of the comfort zone before the trouble, the way we liked it. As I've been having have an opportunity to talk with you and connect with you through various means by email or through video chatting even or uh, texting, what I'm discovering is that all of us here at ICC are experiencing a disruption from this coronavirus crisis in our own unique ways. And no two stories are the same. For some of us, it's the panic of work and all of the things that are happening in our job as a result of this epidemic. And some of you have even lost your jobs or are realizing your job may not really be there when this is all done. Others of you, by spending 24-7 with each other, are discovering some pretty serious cracks in the foundation of your family life. And it's distressing you. And just spending more time with each other isn't solving anything. 
Others of you, you are completely consumed by finances and what your financial situation is going to look like on the other side. And then there are those in our church that are in particularly dangerous situations, whether as healthcare professionals or in other jobs that doesn't afford you the social distancing measures practiced by the rest of us. And you're just living day to day in terror, wondering when it might be that you're going to contract COVID-19. And this is not an easy thing for any of us to go through. And I want to say it is incredibly hard to take on a humble stillness and a learning posture during times like this. Even as I think about my own experience of going through this COVID-19 crisis, I realize that fight internally in me as well. Even the fact that I have to preach like this and do church like this is just, at some levels, it gets so frustrating for me. I mean, it's something as banal as wanting to project certain images that I think would really enhance my sermon. Even the fact that I have to basically put a halt, a hiatus to my idolatry series is just, I felt like we had some momentum there and was going through some real great teaching And yet we've sort of halted it all because of this. The prospect of even celebrating the most important holiday of the calendar, Easter, individually, privately in our homes is just so burdensome to me. And there's something deep inside me that's just fighting all this and kicking against it. I don't like it. I don't like doing it like this. I think about even in my family life and what it has meant in my marriage and my relationship with my kids. And and as I'm spending constant time with them, there's been undeniably joyful and celebratory moments. But there have been more difficult moments as I look at myself as a husband and as a father. And my inadequacies are being exposed through this crisis. And again, I don't like it. I don't like it. Um, Another situation that has arisen that I'm really struggling with right now is that my daughter, Noelle, um, she's working as a nursing assistant, as uh, I might have mentioned before. Um, And because of a lack of um, personal protective equipment for the staff of the hospital, Uh, They've been thrust into a lot of patient care situations without adequate protection. And so she uh, just last week uh, got exposed and ended up having to care for a patient who later on ended up testing positive for COVID-19. And she's right now in self-quarantine in our basement. Uh, We don't even get to eat meals together. Um, Anytime she comes upstairs, she's in a mask and gloves. And our family also has had to take extra measures in light of that. And now there is this fear. Are we going to contract COVID-19 in our family? And there's something out of all of this that makes us just want to get through this and get on the other side of it so that we can get back to life as usual. 
But as I look at all of these stories of suffering and trial in the Bible, we can see that God has a much greater agenda than that. You know, when the Israelites were forced into Babylonian captivity, there were these false prophets that told them exactly what they wanted to hear. Don't worry. This is going to end real fast. It's all going to be okay. We'll be back in Israel before you know it. And God spoke a counter message through his true prophet, Jeremiah, in chapter 29, verse 5 to 7. And he said this. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God basically tells his people, I know the disruption is what bothers you the most. And that's all you can focus on. It's getting back to life as normal. But he tells his people, settle down. Even in the midst of this, the chaos of all of this that you're going through, I am at work in your life. And there are things that I am wanting to accomplish in you during these disruptive times. And I am asking you to surrender to that and be still and learn and listen. And that is what I think all of us are being invited to. However, this coronavirus crisis has unsettled your life and disrupted things. Rather than fighting against that or stubbornly clinging to your idols, maybe what God is asking of you is to enter into this time with a humble and stilled soul before God and say, Lord, what is it that you have for me through all of this? Let's pray. Father, these are incredibly difficult times. And we know that things are even going to get harder in the weeks that lie ahead. And Lord, we do pray for your protection over all our families, over the whole nation, even over the whole world. We don't know these people personally, but these stories emerge of the unbelievable pain and suffering people are experiencing as a result of this. And in your mercy, we ask you, Father God, to bring relief to that suffering and to that pain. Protect those in our midst who are particularly being exposed to the virus on a regular basis out of necessity and watch over them. But I also pray, Father, for all of us as we go through this crisis together that you would accomplish your will in us and give us the faith to believe that you can redeem even in a catastrophe like this for good. And so give us the faith to submit ourselves and to surrender to that good you want to do in us. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.
And now receive the benediction. May God keep you and your family safe during these troubling times, sheltering you under the shadow of his wing. And may God grant to you a heart of wisdom so that you might understand what his will is for you as you learn from the disruption created by this crisis. Amen.